0: In the first fifteen verses of this chapter, the Pharisees confront our Lord over the Sabbath day. In verses 15 through 21, they again challenge the character of our Lord in regard to the prophecy of Isaiah, which predicted that, prophesied that our Savior would take upon himself the form of a servant but yet He would still be the divine Messiah. Our Lord deals with that. And then in verses 22 through through 33, we see the healing of the demon-possessed man. And instead of rejoicing and submitting to who Jesus is, the Pharisees want to tear down our Lord. He is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He is healing the sick. He is... Opening blinded eyes, He is delivering men from the power of Satan. And all the Pharisees want to do is discredit Him and attribute what He is doing to the power of Satan. It is in that context that Jesus talks about the unpardonable sin in response to the attitude of the Pharisees. And again, we see a clear contrast between the Pharisees and the Lord Jesus. In verse 33 through 37 that we looked at last Lord's Day, our Lord gives a stinging and severe rebuke to the Pharisees in regard to their language and the words that come out of their mouth. And He tells them that their actions on the outside and the words that come out on the outside are a reflection of their heart that's on the inside. And we learn that words reveal a heart Words reveal if a heart is for God, or words reveal if a heart is in contrast to God. And Jesus' words in that passage, again, is a clear contrast to the difference between our Lord and these Pharisees. Out of His mouth are words of grace and words of forgiveness. Out of their mouth are words of destruction and blasphemy. That leads us to the text this morning. In Matthew chapter number 12, if you'll follow with us as we read in verse number 38, the Bible said, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it. But the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And, behold, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. I want to preach this morning and Lord willing next Sunday morning and maybe even Easter Sunday morning depending on how far we get in the text on the sign of Jonah. This is the subject that our Lord brings up in His response to how the Pharisees responded to what He had been teaching and what He had been saying. It says in verse 38 that certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Master, give us a sign. Work another miracle. Do something to convince us that you are who you say you are. That is the thrust. That's the context of what is happening here in the Scripture. If you were just to open your Bible to Matthew 12, 38, and had read nothing previous to that, you may look at this verse and say, well, that's a legitimate request. They want Jesus to prove to them that He is who He says that He is. But I remind you and those of you who have been here and heard the preaching of this gospel of Matthew know that Jesus has already worked miracles. He has already given evidence that He is the divine Son of God. He has already proven beyond any question that He is who He says that He is. He has fulfilled prophecy. He has opened blinded eyes. He has released men from the power of the devil. Our Lord has done great and mighty things. Our Lord has fed thousands. Our Lord has done many things already in His ministry to prove that He is the Son of the living God. So notice with me first of all in verse 38, a sign requested. Now evidently the scribes have joined in now with the Pharisees and they ask Jesus, they say, Master, we would see a sign from Thee. What they are saying is give us evidence. We hear what you are saying. We hear what you're professing. We hear the prophecies that you're quoting, but we would like some more evidence. Occasionally someone might say, I need more evidence. Those words may be justifiable if you're considering someone's guilt or innocence in a court of law. It may be a a legitimate question if you are questioning the reliability of some new medicine or some new surgical procedure, or if you are questioning the reality of whether something that is being presented is accurate, whether it's factual or whether it is not, it may be appropriate and often is appropriate to make the statement, I need more evidence or I need to see more evidence. We need to do more research on that or The jury's still out on that. You've heard that old cliche that all of the evidence has not yet been considered. However, when it comes to Jesus Christ and His claims to be the Son of God, when it comes to our Lord and His claims to be King and ushering in the Kingdom of God, the phrase, I need more evidence, will not hold water. There is no one today who has a copy of God's Word and has heard the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who could ever justifiably say, I need more evidence. I need more evidence to prove that Jesus is who that He says He is. Now certainly in some parts of the world, there are people who have more revelation of God and His Son than there are in other places of the world. I think it's safe to say that we right here where we sit this morning, We have more than enough evidence in the Scriptures. We have more than enough proof from the Word of God to understand that Jesus is who He said that He was. You see, the problem here in the text is the same problem we have this morning. It is not that there is not sufficient evidence or that there has not been enough miracles and signs and things done to prove that Jesus is who He says that He is. The problem here is the same that it was in Matthew 12:38, it's the depravity of the human heart. It is the fact that men uh, do not want to be seen, do not want to see the very evidence that is given in scripture. It is not that the evidence is not here and the proof is not here, it is the fact that the sinful heart of man rejects that truth and turns a blind eye and a deaf ear to the word of God. The preacher in Ecclesiastes 9.11 said this, Ecclesiastes 9.11, The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. His point in that verse is that wisdom and understanding is not always with the educated. He is saying that wisdom and understanding does not always reside with the intellectuals. And with those who feel that they have arrived intellectually. You notice that in verse 38, you have the intellectuals, you have the spirituals. You have the people who feel they have arrived. You have the scribes who write out the word of God and the law of God. You have the Pharisees who are descendants of of people who knew the Old Testament. And they know the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophecies. In other words, in verse 38, you have the educated, you have the intelligent, you have the men who profess to be wise and to have understanding about everything pertaining to God, to His Son, to the Messiah, to the coming kingdom, and to everything that God has written in the Old Testament. And yet they are standing here after months and months and months of watching and witnessing and talking with and questioning the Son of God and seeing blind eyes open and demon-possessed men set free and seeing the lame walk and seeing deaf ears hear and seeing fevered brows that have, have been healed and cooled and leprosy cured and they're still standing here and saying, We need a sign. We need evidence. We need a miracle. We need you to do something. Move a cloud in the sky for us. Cause this tree to be uprooted here and planted over here. Do something to convince us that you are the Son of God. And it brings us back to what the Ecclesiastes writer said, The race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong. It is not always those who profess to know everything and who who profess to be wise concerning the Word of God. It is not often that you see those people ever really submit and come to Jesus Christ. Oh, they are. Paul said that over in the book of Corinthians. Not many wise. He didn't say not any But he said, not many wise, not many noble. When you get to that arena of the depraved human heart in which men think they know everything, those are individuals who are very unlikely to ever believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's often the very smartest of our world who deny the very truth of Jesus Christ. It is often the very intelligent who avoid the truth of God and make it seem to be foolishness and ignorance. We don't see that anywhere more prevalent than we do in our own culture and in our own world. Those who have been raised in a culture and educated in a culture to question this book and to question the existence of God and to question the infallibility of the Word of God are now sitting in our high courts and they're now sitting in our our places of government and even in our churches and our world and they're even in our homes and families now questioning whether Jesus really is who He said that He was Or if he would do something more than that, maybe they will turn and maybe they will believe. In fact, the problem is not the lack of evidence. The problem is the depravity of the human heart. Men sit in darkness and without the grace of God and without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God, man will never see truth and man will never understand who God is and man will never know who he himself is in his own sinfulness. If you're here saved today, God in His grace revealed that unto you. He showed that to you in His mighty work of redemption. He brought you to saving faith. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said it in Romans 1.18 when he talked about sinful man, when he talked about the depravity of man and the evil and the sinfulness of men. Paul describes them as this. He said they hold the truth in unrighteousness. The word hold there means suppress or it means they restrain the very truth in their fallen humanity. Fallen man makes an effort to hide the evidence concerning both God and man. When it comes to God and to His Word and what God's Word says, deceitful and sinful and depraved man, He holds that in suppression. He wants to restrain the truth about who we are and who God is. Our Lord is standing in front of scribes and Pharisees in verse 38. And they are asking for a sign. They are requesting him do something. They are saying, Master, do something. I mean, you know, make a do, do something. Dance on the head of a pen. Uh, bring a bunch of angels down here and line them up in alphabetical order or something. Do something to show us that you are the Son of God. They are requesting that because in their heart and mind, they are suppressing truth. They are suppressing truth. They are holding truth in unrighteousness, and they are not willing to receive it from the Word of God. You know, years ago, when I was a young young boy growing up and coming up in school, and the first efforts were made to keep prayer out of school, and Also, the first efforts were made to uh, remove Bible reading from public classrooms and public places and all of those things. You know, uh, it was portrayed as people hating the Bible or people hating this or that. The issue really wasn't that men hated the Bible. The issue was that man was suppressing truth. He didn't want people to understand truth. I mean, that's just where we are. But I want you to see it was also in Jesus' day... When men are standing looking at the very incarnated Son of God, God in the flesh, and they are saying to Him, Master, we would see a sign from Thee. Do something to prove to us that You're the Son of God. Now fast forward to the crucifixion of our Lord, and they're asking for the same thing. You know, if Thou be the Son of God, what? Come down. If You're the Son of God, come down what they didn't realize that would have been the worst thing for their soul would have been for the Son of God to have come down from the cross you say well if he had improved it what would they have done they'd have rejected him and walked straight into hell just like men do who suppress the truth of God church we either believe the word of God or we deny the word of God we either believe what God has said in this book or we deny Jesus has already said, there's no gray area, there's no middle ground. He that is not with me is against me. He that's not for me is against me. You're either denying me or you're affirming me. One of the two. And here are the Pharisees. In this request, they are confirming that they do not know the Lord. So a prime example of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness is here in verse 38. Now some read this and say, well preacher, don't be hard on them. They are being very polite to Jesus. They call Him Master, or as could be translated, Teacher. We know we would see a sign from Thee. You're saying uh, they're being polite to Him, like Nicodemus was when he said, Teacher, we know that Thou you know, art come from God. They do use the word that, is, that would seem that they are polite. That's the way you speak to a rabbi in that day. But the question is Disrespectful. It's very disrespectful because the Lord had already shown miraculous signs in their presence. You say, well, if I'm I'm saying, uh, I don't really know if Jesus is God in the flesh or not. Preacher, is that polite? That's disrespectful because God has already proven Himself that and it's already written in the Word of God. You say, well, I hadn't read the Word of God. Then, brother, the problem's not on God's part. The problem's on your part. The problem's in your field. They come to him appearing to be polite, but in the very language of politeness, they are showing the greatest disrespect to the Son of God that could be shown. They're asking for a sign. It would be like a child calling out in the middle of the night to a father. Come uh, Dad, Mom, bring me a drink of water. You take them a drink of water, set it on the bed stand, and go back and lay down. And they cry again. You come back and the water is still sitting there. And you say to them, The water is sitting here. And then the third time and the fourth time. And finally you're saying, Here is the water. Jesus has presented the truth about himself and about who he is, not once, not twice, not three times, but over and over and over again. And they have the audacity But really, the depravity to stand there in front of him and say, Show us more. Do something more exciting. You know, make something happen that will convince us that you are the Son of God. Now, let me just say first of all, there's nothing wrong with asking for a sign. They're coming out of the Old Testament where the Lord did those very things. When a prophet came to bring a message to Israel, God usually confirmed them in one of two ways. Number one, he would either let that generation live to see that prophecy fulfilled to prove that that prophecy was true. Or second, he would give the prophet power to do a certain miracle so that they would believe that he was sent from God. I know a lot of people think the Bible is a book full of miracles, but actually it's not. Miracles are very limited in their scope and they're very limited in their seasons, Over in the Old Testament, the days of Moses, when the children of Israel were coming out, God allowed miracles to be done in Pharaoh's presence to convince him that God was God. And then in the days of Elijah and Elisha, you had another burst of miracles. But they're not on every page. They were used to convince that what God was speaking, what God was saying, or what God was doing was really of God and that's how they were used in the Old Testament so there's nothing unreasonable about desiring a sign from Jesus if he had never done anything prior to this but if you read the Word of God he's done enough that they should never ever ask again for those of you that are lost this morning wondering if Jesus is who he says that he is I would challenge you this morning and invite you and exhort you to pick up a copy of God's Word and read about it. I would exhort you to turn to John chapter 1 and read the Gospel of John. I would exhort you to do that. You say, preacher, does that work? Does that really work? It absolutely does. We are born again by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. I shared this with you a year or so back. I went to school with a, well, with a young man in Iredell County. He was a year older than I. He grew up in the Christian science religion, and uh, we had some interesting conversations. He and I went to uh, grade school together through eight years, and then went to four years of high school together. We never argued. We were friends, and we went to school together, and, but he was a Christian science. When I started preaching in my junior year of high school, we had some really interesting conversations, and he had always, always stood his ground on what he believed about those things. Uh, he has a member of his family that, that I know very well. That's a preacher. God called him to preach. And uh, he called me, I think it was a year or so ago now, or maybe close to a year now, and uh, told me this man had gotten saved. This man had gotten saved. I've preached to him several times. He had family in my former pastor, and he would come occasionally. And I preached to him. And I knew this man. He, was very, he wasn't an arguer. He wasn't, he wasn't somebody irrational. He just believed what he believed. And so I asked this preacher, I said, tell me, what was it that changed his heart? I said, tell me what was going on. And I was afraid he was going to tell me that he went to one of these meetings and got caught up in one of these emotional altar call things. And, but I knew this man better than that. He had more sense than that, I thought. But he told me, he said, I've been telling him for years, just read the Word of God. And he said he called him one night and he said, I've been reading John's Gospel." And he said, I'm wrong. He said, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, that don't excite Baptists. Now, if 50 people come to an altar and all profess to get saved this morning, and I baptize them tonight, and then three years later, 48 of them are back out in sin, Baptists get thrilled over that. And that's a shame. But when a man tells you, I picked up the Word of God, and I read it, and I'm convinced now by the work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God that Jesus is who He says He is. Folks, that's true biblical conversion. That's what it's about. Jesus is saying, You're asking a sign from me, and I've already given you more than enough evidence to prove that I am the Son of God. You see, the problem is the Pharisees were rejoicing in the signs, and they were rejoicing in the miracles. People still do that today. Man, the miraculous. You take a preacher, any given preacher, and I I promise you this, based on the preachers I know this morning, the average preacher that I know that I'm personally acquainted with who preaches the Word of God will stand up this morning and do what I'm doing here. They will open the Bible, take a passage of Scripture. They will expound that text. They will preach that Word as best they know how, and the average person will get up and walk away from that, and folks will say, nothing important happened today at church. On the other hand, if something unusual, something they call miraculous, some kind of great sign, you know, if while the choir is singing, one of the flags happened to move, you know, or one of the lights flickers when the preacher says Jesus and they claim that's the Holy Ghost and it could be a shortened floor that he's stomping on, I don't know. But those are the things people get excited about. Jesus said, if everything that I've done, if everything that I've done, and now you're standing here wanting more? You're wanting me to do something more amazing. They were in effect saying we want something spectacular from you. They were saying to him, Teacher, your sign so far has not convinced us. Your healing of those that were sick, when you release the demons out of these individuals that you release, not enough. When you bound up the brokenhearted, when you opened up deaf ears, when you loose bound tongues, it's not enough. It's not adequate. When you went into Peter's mother's uh, mother-in-law's house and, and calmed that fever, not enough. When you took the demon out of the Gadarean and, and put clothes on him and he went back home, whole, and now he's got a Christian The character of true Christianity is to believe the truth. To believe the truth. And there are people today who think Christianity is believing though there is no reason to believe. Some people describe Christianity as a leap in the dark or a leap of faith. That's not Christianity. What is that? That's a leap of in the dark. That's a leap of faith. It doesn't necessarily mean anything's going to be there when you leap. Christianity is based upon truth. Crystal clear truth. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Truth. He created the heavens and the earth. There God created the heavens God created everything that is. There is a heaven. There is a place of paradise and joy for the child of God. When we leave here, those of us who are saved, that is the clear crystal truth. There is a place of torment, a place called hell for the unredeemed, where the worm dieth not, and they suffer under the wrath of God forever and forever. All who reject Christ, that is the crystal clear truth of God, as stated in the Word of God. Christianity is about believing the truth of Almighty God. The problem in verse 38 with the Pharisees in Jesus' day is the same problem with sinful man today. It's not that we don't have the evidence. It is we don't believe the truth. Are you here this morning lost without Jesus Christ? Preacher, I'll get saved when I get more evidence. Then rest assured you will never be saved. You must believe. You must believe. You know what Jesus said? And it's recorded over in the book of the Revelation. You remember where it talks about over in the book of the Revelation about hailstones that will fall upon the earth. And if the measurements, if you do your measurements, it may vary somewhat, but hailstones will fall weighing somewhere between 90 and 100 pounds. You'd say, oh my goodness, if that happens to men, they will surely cry out. God to save them. You know what the scripture says there? It says they will blaspheme the very God whenever those things hit them. There's been enough in this world. Things that have happened. You would have thought men will turn to God. Men will not turn to God till they believe the truth about Jesus Christ. It is that these Pharisees and men today do not want to believe the truth. Even though the truth is staring them right in the face. We live in a day. We live in a culture. We live in a society and a time when we are blessed of God to have the very truth of God in our hands. The very truth of the Lord God Himself written here in the pages of God's Word. A sign requested. But look with me. I just want to introduce this second thought in verse number 39. But... The conjunction, but, he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. A sign requested and a sign rejected. Jesus said to them, there's going to be no signs. Now that doesn't mean that he's not going to work other miracles or that there will not be other miracles worked. It means that what you're going to see in the coming days, is the resurrection of the Son of God. And that's the only sign that's going to be given. Nothing else. But notice how he addresses this group in verse number 39. An evil and adulterous generation craves or desires or wants a sign, a miracle. And yet there's nothing going to be given except the sign in the Old Testament where Jonah was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights and he was raised up, a sign and a prophecy of our Lord's resurrection. What Jesus is saying is, you will see the divine proof that I am Christ in the resurrection of the dead. It's the great testimony that Jesus is who He claims to be. We'll talk about this the next few Sundays, but folks, if Jesus Christ is not risen, then every song we sung this morning was absolutely ridiculous. It's a joke. The Sunday school lesson that was taught here today in every age group is a farce. What I'm doing today is the most foolish thing and your faith is absolutely empty and in vain if Christ is occupying a tomb somewhere. But thank God we know He's not. And our faith is not in vain. Notice with me, Jesus responds by characterizing their generation as evil and adulterous. I can't think of two words Jesus could have used to the Pharisees that would have been more offensive to them than those two words. He said, You are an evil and an adulterous generation. Evil means you're wicked, you're morally corrupt, and adulterous means you're unfaithful to the one to whom you are married. And if you know the Old Testament, God pictured himself and Israel in that relationship. And he often called them an adulterous nation. No more, no more vivid picture of that than in the book of Hosea where God talked about their adultery. He's saying that to people who considered themselves moral who considered themselves righteous, who considered themselves the purest of the pure? He told them that, he said, "You've asked that because you are evil." and he said, "You've asked that because you are adulterous." He's saying, "You love God, you love yourself more than you love God. You know when somebody commits adultery, they love themselves more than they love their spouse. and, G- and Jesus is saying to these Pharisees and scribes, you love yourself more than you love God. He's saying you're the exact opposite of what you ought to be. He's saying you're religious, you're legalistic, you're symbolic on the outside. But he said on the inside, your heart is black and your heart is lost and your heart is away from God. They refused to accept what God had done through His Son. They were stubborn, hardened, and full of unbelief. They want to see more. And the problem is not that they hadn't seen enough. The problem is their deceitful heart. What does he mean by this generation? He talks about an evil and adulterous generation. Well, he could be speaking about the entire Jewish race. He could be speaking about the hard-hearted Jewish people that were among that race. Or he could specifically be talking to those standing in front of him. But... Probably it's a combination of a little bit of all of it. But I think he's saying, those of you standing right here who have had the opportunity to see the miracles that I do and you've had opportunities that other generations have never had, he said, you are evil and you are adulterous. We talk about our life. We talk about our homes, our families. We talk about our nation, our cities, our counties. And I don't like to use the word bless. We've been blessed in the way that some people use the word blessed, but I think each of us must admit that if there's been a generation of people that have had more gospel light, brother, we are that generation. My goodness. You you can go, you can get in your vehicle today and turn your radio dial from one end to the other. And if you turn slow enough and long enough, and I'd suggest you go to FM to do that, but if you'll turn left or right on that, you will probably hear the gospel somewhere, the true gospel. It'll be there somewhere. Most of you have it in your hands or laying on your laps or in your Bible. You have it on your pew there. You have phones, or you have uh, electronic devices, and all you can, all you have to do is just Google in the word gospel or true salvation, and you've got light. It's right there in the front of you. Jesus said, you are an evil and adulterous generation because all of your relationship to God is on the surface and there's none on the inside. That's why you want to see something, feel something, have something amazing happen always in your life. Jesus said, it's evil and it's wicked and you're unfaithful. These Pharisees were sick with sin. And you and I are sick with sin. We are wicked and unfaithful in need of salvation. Do you believe that any leper Jesus cured could have ever been cured of leprosy without Jesus? There's no record that anyone ever ever was. The blinded eyes could never have been opened unless Jesus opened those blinded eyes. The maniac of Gadara, the demon-possessed person we read about last week uh, and, and prior to that, they would have never found freedom and normality and new life without Jesus Christ. And no sinner sitting in here today or listening by other means will ever be whole without the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Jesus said there will be no other sign. Spiritual adultery is more prevalent today in the church than it ever has been. Probably more prevalent than physical adultery. James said in James 4:4, 4, 4, "Ye adulterers and adulteresses know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God." Now if you read this and you think the Pharisees are ready to sing, "Yes, Jesus loves me, you're wrong." And if you think Jesus came to this world to win friends and influence people and start a movement, you're wrong. Jesus loved these Pharisees and the way that I know he loved them was because he told them the truth about their condition. I heard a preacher this week on the radio say that the gospel was good news and total good news and he said he got bothered when he heard preachers preach anything but good news. And I'm sitting in my car preaching to an audience of nobody but me and I said the good news isn't good and never will be good Until you understand the bad news. You know what makes the good news good news? The bad news about who I was and what I am. That's what makes the good news good news. If I wasn't so unrighteous, what would be so good about His righteousness? If I wasn't so lost, what would be good about Him coming to find me if I didn't think I was really that lost to begin with? If I wasn't that messed up, what would be so good about Him coming to fix me up? If I wasn't so out there, alienated from God, what's so good about somebody trying to come and get me to God when I think I'm already near God? Christ didn't come to help us take a little step of faith. He didn't come to bring us back over the little bridge. Thank God He came to rescue those who had absolutely no hope without Him. Never would we have been in God's presence. Jeremiah 17, 9 sums it up. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I'm going to stop here this morning, but the second part of this is Jesus responds by saying the only sign, the only sign He will give is that of Jonah the prophet. How that typified our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. We'll be celebrating that resurrection in a few Sundays, Lord willing. We can celebrate it this morning. Jesus, a sign requested, a sign rejected. Do you remember? Do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Most of you do in Luke 16. You remember the rich man out of torment? He calls from out of torment to Father Abraham. And he asked Father Abraham to send someone back from the dead to testify to his family who are still without Christ so they won't go to this awful place. I think it's the way the Scriptures say it. And do you remember Father Abraham's response to that man in Luke 16, 29, and 30? Listen to the Scriptures. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. That sounds exactly like what we just read in Matthew 12, 38. Father Abraham said to this man, No, if they won't believe this book, it won't do any good for somebody, if they were raised from the dead, to come back and preach. This is where it's at today. Either we believe what Jesus said or we don't believe what Jesus said. Either He's God or He's not. Either He's Lord or He's not. Either you're saved or you're not. These Pharisees were not going to believe because the basic problem is not the lack of evidence. It is the stubborn, prideful, and sinful heart. Preacher, what do I do? What a great question. What a great question. Saul of Tarsus wanted to know that and Philippian Jailer wanted to know that. You know what the answer is? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Lord willing, we'll look for more fully at the sign of Jonah the prophet and what that means to the great sign of our Lord's resurrection. But I want to remind you before we leave this morning in light of this text... He is in charge, not the Pharisees. I want to remind you of that. And one of the songs we sang a while ago is, was encouraging us to focus on Him. Are we looking for a day when wrongs will be right and things? Yes, but we need to focus on Him. And the Pharisees couldn't get it, and many people today can't get it. But I want to tell you, He's in charge. He sets the agenda. You, don't, you and I don't pull his strings. We don't make him do anything. Dr. Vance Hebner said, and I've quoted it many times in that passage in Acts, where the sheet's being let down and, and God's showing Peter what's clean and what's unclean. If you remember, Peter responded to the Lord and he said, Not so, Lord. Dr. Vance Hebner said, You can't say that. If he's Lord, you can't say not so. If he's Lord, he's Lord. You and I have no reason to question or challenge who he is. He decides what he'll do and what he won't do. Jesus is not doing miracles on demand. He's not going to be my private miracle worker, nor is he going to be yours. Remember what Herod said when Pilate, turned him, when Pilate found out where Jesus was from? You Remember he turned him back over to Herod, sent him back to Herod in Luke 23? All this information they've got About Jesus and his being the Messiah. Listen to this, and we're done. Luke 23 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. You remember that? And when he questioned Jesus, Jesus never answered. Christ never gives sinful man what he wants thank God he gives sinful man what he needs and that is the truth about who we are what greater sign than his own resurrection and we'll look at that Lord willing next week and in the weeks to come if you're sitting here this morning without a savior call call out unto him bow before him Confess your unbelief and say, Lord, help mine unbelief. God, forgive me for my unbelief. The evidence is more than enough. If you're leaving here wondering and questioning if Jesus is who he said that he is, then I challenge you, I exhort you open the pages of God's word and read. Read about a book. Read from this book that is absolute truth without any mixture of error. Read. Read who Jesus said He was. Read the fulfilled prophecies. Read what He did. He must be who He said that He was. Kings and kingdoms will come and go. But our King and His kingdom will endure forever. Father, I want to thank You this morning for the precious, precious Word of God. Father, I want to thank You that long before I even knew and realize what you were doing. Lord, people that loved me. My parents. My Sunday school teachers. My Bible school teachers. My training union teachers. The preachers who came by our church to preach. Was placing within my heart the truth about Jesus Christ and who he was. And Father, I want to thank you for that time in my life. when, Whenever you brought me to that point and that place. And Father, truth. Truth was there, and you gave me faith, and you gave me strength, and you gave me life to believe. I thank you for that. Lord, no doubt here today in this congregation is individuals sitting who know the facts, but Lord, they've never believed by faith. I pray for their salvation. I pray, God, right now you would give them strength and you would convert them, you would help them to call out unto you for saving grace. For those listening by other means today, if they still lack evidence, if they still are questioning, Lord, help them to open your book and read the truth about who you are. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us to rejoice, especially this month. May we rejoice in that great sign of resurrection, the great truth that you were, you were killed, you did die, you were buried, and that on the third day you rose from the grave convincing more than enough evidence, more than enough proof, to prove that you are the Savior that we've been singing about and preaching about and that we fellowship in every time we meet together. Lord, I thank you for that today. Help us. Help us see our sinfulness. Help us see your righteousness. And then you do the changing that only you can do. We do love you and thank you for your great grace. I pray for every need in our church family this morning. Again, for these we mentioned. I ask, Lord, you'd be with them and their families. And you'd help us as we go our separate ways on this Lord's day. And as we live and witness throughout this week in both the good times and the bad times, may our life be a testimony of your saving grace and your goodness to us. Thank you for giving us truth. And may we cherish it. And may we always present it as you give it to us clearly. And in love and compassion, in your name we do pray. Amen. Thank God for His goodness.